0: If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 this morning. We begin in verse 8. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The title of my message this morning is Smyrna, the Persecuted Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to open up your word, and knowing, God, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts, Lord, and to give us encouragement in the times in which we're living in. As we look at this church and we look at the things that they faced, Lord, during their time, we see that we are just getting a taste of it during our time. So, Lord, we pray that as we look to your words and what you have to say to this church, that we would take these same words, apply them to our lives, that we might serve you better, know you better, be encouraged in our walks with you. And Lord, finally, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you completely, Lord, if they're not born again here this morning, would you especially touch their heart today? Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I read a story about an elderly lady who is driving this big, new, expensive car, and she's preparing to uh, back into a parallel parking space when suddenly this young man in a small sports car zoomed in ahead of her. The woman, I mean, angrily asked why he had done this as she, you know, he could tell that she was trying to park there. His response was simply because I am young and I am quick. And the man entered the store. Well, when he came out a few minutes later, he found the elderly lady using her big car now as a battering ram, backing up and then ramming again into the car, backing up and doing it again into a sports car. He very angrily asked her why she was wrecking his car. Her response was, because I'm old and I'm rich. We all claim to have certain freedoms. I'm young, I'm free to do as I please, or I'm old and I'm rich and I can do as I please. But if we aren't free in Christ, then truly we aren't free. We here in the United States have been blessed, very blessed over the years, because we know that our government was formed and founded upon Judeo Christian biblical principles. And because of those principles, they have shaped our values, our society, its institutions. And as a result, we have certain individual freedoms that other nations really don't have, including our First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And sadly, those religious freedoms have come under attack like never before. We talked about this a little bit last week. No other time that I can recall in my generation, I've seen the church being attacked in America like it is today. All under the guise of this pandemic, this state of emergency, telling churches they cannot gather together, telling churches uh, if they do gather, they, they cannot worship, they shouldn't sing inside their church, threatening to cut off the power of a church if they do decide to gather, if they don't comply. I think we certainly, as a church, need to be praying for our sister churches out in California. Many Calvary chapels in California are experiencing a much greater attack than we are. Pastor Rob McCoy of Godspeak Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks, I got a chance to meet this guy a couple years ago. He was ordered not to meet indoors regardless of their social distancing, regardless of the face mask. In fact, there was a judge that issued a restraining order barring the church from meeting indoors today. So Rob, Pastor Rob shared, I wish I didn't have to come to this. I really do, but we will be violating the judge's order. We will be open this Sunday, That which is great. And he says, as a gift for the first 1,000 people that come in, they will get a misdemeanor put to their record. <laughs> Which absolutely may be true because they the, the judge ordered them the the, the to, to be fined for this. So we'll see what's going to happen today. But they're not the only church, so we need to be praying for them, especially today, you know, as they get their their services started this morning. Well, I'm appalled at how far our country has turned its back on God, and I'm aware that we as believers in the United States have the possibility of facing. Much more persecution than we've ever imagined before, you know, the Lord returns. We hope that we don't have to. We hope the Lord comes back. But we have that possibility. It's really nothing compared to the persecution that we're reading about that this church faced. This second letter, which really is just a postcard, it's just four verses long, was written to this church in Smyrna, or better known as the Suffering Church. It is thought that perhaps 6 million, as many as 6 million Christians were martyred for the faith during this time as the Roman government tried to wipe out Christianity. Let me give you a little background about Smyrna. Smyrna was this beautiful city in the ancient world. It was known for its beauty. It sat on a natural harbor, much like if you've been to San Diego, much like that. Just beautiful. You had the ocean air, just gorgeous. It was a major route to Persia. The trade went from east. To west And it passed through Smyrna, so large amounts of money was poured into this city. I mean, the architecture was just, just beautiful. It had great political prominence. It was a major headquarters for the Roman government. It was also a city filled with temples, including the first temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar. It became the central place of Caesar worship. In fact, they killed people who did not worship Caesar. And get this every year, every citizen was to burn incense on Caesar's altar, after which which they were given a certificate. And if you did not have that certificate, it meant death to the Christian. And I read that and I go, oh man, COVID 19 vaccination certificates? I mean, what's going to happen? I don't know. I'm just saying. Smyrna was named after the chief product of that city. Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh was an embalming spice used during biblical times. What's interesting about this burial spice is that it's a very sweet fragrance, but it must be crushed in order to give off that fragrance, that aroma. And what an appropriate name for a church that was being crushed through persecution who were being martyred for their faith. But the beauty of it was the more their lives were being crushed, the more the fragrance of Christ was given off from their lives. And so Jesus begins in his words to this church in verse 8, and he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. An angel, if you would call, remember, we means messenger, or we look at it as the pastor of the church. Now, the pastor of the church of Smyrna, we know from history, uh, was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John, who's getting this letter from Jesus. So John is told to share this letter from Jesus to his friend Polycarp. Now what is also interesting about Smyrna is in comparison to Ephesus, Smyrna is still there. I bring that up because last time together we saw the warning that was given to the church in Ephesus that if they did not return to their first love, their lampstand would be removed. And guess what? That church no longer exists. But today, there still is the church in Smyrna. For how long, we don't know. It's called by its Turkish name, Izmir, and it's now the chief and largest city in Turkey. It has a population of about 200,000 people, and one-third of them are Christians. Although the attacks are coming now against them, and it's predominantly becoming an Islamic nation, even as we speak. But here, Jesus is speaking to the church some 2,000 years ago, And the church today, our church, and people that are experiencing great times of difficulties and persecution and hardship, and Jesus is writing this postcard, so to speak, just to encourage them and encourage us. I mean, see, we as a church in America, we could be facing much more intense persecution and hard times. Maybe you're even going through a difficult time in your life, a time of persecution or just some pain and suffering, and life has just been hard. Jesus has words for all of us this morning to hear. And if you're taking notes, I want to point out five things in these four verses that should encourage all of us. Let me just tell them to you quickly first. Number one, Jesus is eternal. Number two, Jesus knows about our suffering. Number three, Jesus has a plan. Number four, Jesus has a promise. Number five, Jesus takes away our fear. I'll go over them as we go through so you don't have to try and write them all down at once. But number one... When going through times of persecution or suffering, we need to remember that Jesus is eternal. Look at verse 8. Again, Jesus says, These things, it says, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Now, we've looked at this before. The words first and the last is a phrase borrowed from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So clearly this is a a picture of Jesus' deity, Jesus Christ's deity. Remember, Jesus identifies himself to each one of these churches according to their need, according to what's going on in that church. He reveals himself as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now this is awesome, because that's exactly what they needed to hear. The phrase, who was dead, literally means who became dead. These people were about to face tremendous persecution and suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ, even death. And here Jesus reveals himself to them as one who's been there, who became dead. And we see Jesus through the ultimate suffering of being separated from God for us. He became dead so we can be alive to God by believing in him. He took our punishment for our sin to give us a living relationship with God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, these Christians in Smyrna, they're going to suffer. They're going to die horrible deaths. There may have come a time when they would have asked themselves, why? Why Why is this? Why should I die? Is this worth it? And I'm sure they probably thought in their minds a million and one reasons how they could still follow Christ and somehow try to rationalize a way that they can deny him. Yet, Jesus reminds them of how much he loves them and how he became dead for them, what he's done for them. But he goes on. It gets better. He says, the one who became dead and came to life. That's what makes it so good. Not only did he become dead, he goes on to say he's now alive, life forever. He is eternal. Though they were going to die, Jesus is telling them that they don't have to fear someone who can kill their body because he's already conquered the grave. He put it this way in Matthew 10:28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I think the most fearful thing for a non-believer about death is what happens when you die. For the believer, the most fearful thing is, how am I going to die? I just don't want to go through a lot of pain when it happens. But for the non-believer, the most fearful thing is what happens when you die. Yet Jesus experienced death, and he lived again to tell about it. That Jesus is the only one who can speak authoritatively to the issue of what happens after we die, because he knows. And he's told us even in his word in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. We're told in John 14:19, because I live, you will live also. Jesus is reminding them of his triumph over death. He's giving them courage and strength for the hour when they too would be facing death. Why? Because he is the one who knows. In fact, that is point number two. When we go through times of persecution, when we go through times of suffering, remember, Jesus knows about our suffering, point number two. Look at verse nine. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, are the synagogue of Satan. He begins by telling them, I know your tribulation. That word for tribulation comes from the word pressure. In classical Greek, Greek, Greek. it's a new language. It's like Greek, only Greek. It's used to describe a man slowly being crushed to death by the ever-increasing pressure of a heavy boulder. Think about that. Isn't that how suffering is? You know, you're going through something and you just feel like there's this pressure is on you that never goes away and, and you can't turn it on or off. It usually goes on and on and, and lasts beyond our ability to cope with it. We can't make it go away even though we want it to. That is what the Lord is saying here. I know your tribulation. I know what's going on in your life and I know about this relentless burden that is bearing down on you that will not go away. I know that you've been called to bear something that seems to last forever, something that's pressing down upon you. I know, he says. I want you to know. I know what you're going through. He says, I know about your poverty. Now, this is interesting. The word for poverty is a Greek word, uh, tochiaia, which means beggary. It means absolute, utter destitution. I know your poverty. I know your absolute, utter destitution. They were the poorest of poor because of the persecution they faced. See, Jesus only could say, I know what that's like. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty might become rich. Jesus says, I know. He goes on and he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They experienced blasphemy, slander would probably be a better translation. See, these Jews that lived in Smyrna were a giant problem to the Christians. The Jews wanted to be on the good side of Rome and so uh, and not have Rome pick on them, so to speak, so they turned all their attention against the Christians and they would report lies back to the Roman authorities about what the Christians were doing. Slander, lies, things going on that weren't going on. It came from these these uh, false Jews, those that claimed to be Jews, but really were doing the devil's work. A smear campaign was happening against these Christians. Lies were being told about them. We know some of these from early literature that because the Christians talked about eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, they were accused of being cannibals. Because they refused to, to worship in the pagan temples and acknowledged the gods of the pagans, they were referred to as atheists. Because these Christians often talked about being members of one another, loving one another, they were accused of sexual orgies. All this slander coming against them and and that's what produced much of the persecution that they faced. And it says, we're told, that they came from the Jews. These these physical descendants of Abraham that had a synagogue there in Smyrna. Jesus refers to it as being the synagogue of Satan. Even though these Jews professed Faith in God, they really were instruments of the devil. Just like the Pharisees who harassed and hounded Jesus before, they also persecuted these believers. So Jesus is saying here, Hey, I know. I know what it's like. I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to suffer persecution. I know what it's like to suffer poverty. I know what it's like to suffer slander and ridicule. It's interesting, this word for I know doesn't just mean he knows by watching. But the word implies that he knows because he has passed through the same thing himself. He knows through experience. I know what it's like. I've been there, Jesus says. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, if someone here in the church suddenly reached down from under their seat and pulled out a bag of rocks and started throwing them at me, I wouldn't like it. Wouldn't appreciate it. But afterwards, when he went to jail, I wouldn't want to really go talk to him. I I wouldn't understand how he could do such a thing. But if a person, instead of pulling out a bag of rocks, pulls out a, a caramel and banana concrete from Andy's and a hot, fresh, warm Krispy Kreme donut on top of that, and they start eating it during service, you know... It. Afterwards, I say, I would say, man, I, I know, I understand, I understand the struggle. I've been there. I, I understand. So too for Jesus to be the compassionate, faithful High Priest that the Book of Hebrews tells us He is, the suffering one through, had to be real. For Him to be uh, touched with the feelings of our infirmities and to understand what we're going through, He had to have been where we've been. That's why Jesus is the only God that can say, I know, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I've experienced poverty and slander and persecution and rejection. You know, when you're hurting in a bad way, it's just great to talk to someone who's been there. I mean, you talk to someone who hasn't been there, and, and I mean, they try to relate to you in the way they can, but they really can't. But as soon as you talk to someone who, who has been there and they say, I know. And, and And you know you know that they know, you know they know, and it 's like, oh, and it 's not even so much what they say that encourages you, but it 's just to know that there's someone out there that has gone through what you 're going through, and they're still standing, they 're still alive, they're still uh, enduring through it, some have come through it, some are at least coming coming out of it. that helps me. And they comfort, you know, they're able to comfort me with the comfort which they have been comforted. In fact, that's what we're told in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I find it interesting here that Jesus doesn't say, I'll take away your suffering. He says, I know. I know what it is you're going through. And here's my point. Maybe as you go through your hardship right now, you're saying, God, you've got to get me out of this situation. Lord, you've you got to airlift me out of this thing that's happening in my life right now. And the Lord is saying to you, my grace is sufficient for you. I am eternal. I'm in control. There's a beginning. There's a middle. And there will be an end. But until then, you've got to trust me. I know what you're going through. This brings us to our third point. As we go through times of persecution or suffering, we need to remember that Jesus has a plan. Look at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. The Lord is saying here, Listen, things are going to get worse before they get better. The Lord is giving them a prophecy here. He's laying out a plan for them. He says the suffering isn't going to end. In fact, it's going to continue. Some of you are going to be put into prison. And let me let you know, he says, the devil is behind it. He's going to do it. But notice, he says, there's a limit to the suffering. In verse 10, the Lord says, you will have tribulation ten days. And I say, well, what does that mean? Well, some people think, well, it means ten years. And he's using, you know, a day as if it were a year. Some people think, well, it's an undetermined amount of time. But, you know, I, I kind of feel when God wants to say something, he can just say it. <laughs> so if he says 10 days, then maybe he really just meant 10 days. You know, you read all these different commentaries and they say, well, this 10 days means this. And in, in numerology, this means this. And there's all sorts of these different views. I think the Lord just meant 10 days. To this actual church in Smyrna, yes, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, and you're going to have some intense trouble for ten days, but it's going to be a short imprisonment. Maybe it ended in their death, maybe it ended in their release, but Jesus is absolutely clear that there is a divinely appointed duration and limit to their suffering. Paul, in in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, We often use this verse for the temptations we face, but this word also means trial, where he says, no temptation or trial has overtaken you except which is common to to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation, with that trial, will make a way for you to escape that you may be able to bear it. See, every trial we face Every period of suffering we encounter or will ever encounter is measured out by the heart of an infinitely loving God. There isn't any fiery trial you'll walk through that God doesn't know where that thermostat is, so to speak, and He has it set just right. You know, in our house, our thermostat is a battleground. I mean, it absolutely is. You know, I am always cold and my wife is always hot. I said, first service, that's why I married her, because she's just hot, but and she still is, but I embarrass her. But but you know, we have that, you know, I, we have this battle. You know, I walk in, and it's like, it's freezing in here. You can hang, hang meat in here. And she goes, like, it's hot. We need to turn it down. And, oh, man. And I go back and forth, back and forth button, back and forth, back and forth. Listen, God knows how to set His thermostat. There's not a trial that you walk into that God doesn't know the exact end of that trial. One of, my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible has come to be and it came to pass. I love that. Because God knows when we're well done. When we're done. And we just need to rely on Him. Trust that He has a plan. So you say, well, why do these bad things have to happen to us? Well, sometimes it's just because we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. Sometimes they're brought about by the devil tempting us to sin, tempting us to go down a path we shouldn't go down, and then we reap the consequences. But uh, other times, like we're reading here, it's just Satan wreaking havoc in our lives just because he hates God and sins. God loves you, he hates you. But know this, whatever Satan proposes, if it happens in our lives, God has permitted it. I, understand, I mean, the, the story of Job is a classic example of this. You know, the devil comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, Hey, and have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth that blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And the devil says, Just let me at him. Take your hand of protection off him. We'll see what he's truly made of. And God could have said, No, no you back off, Job. You leave him alone. But instead, the Lord allowed it. In fact, the Lord was bragging about Job that started the whole thing in the first place. I said, Lord, if you ever feel like bragging about me, don't do it in front of the devil. (laughs) But all those things, horrible things, afflictions, came against God's servant. The Lord allowed it. He had a purpose in it. And God will allow certain things, and the devil means to destroy you, but God will allow it to refine you. And there are just times in our lives where the Lord allows suffering to strengthen us, and the form into the people that he's called us to be. Many of us have heard this quote from A.W. Tozer who said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Again, God uses the suffering in our own lives so we can help those that are suffering around us, as we talked about already in 2 Corinthians 1.3. We can comfort people with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. But sadly, I, I think that all too often we don't make ourselves available to minister to each other. We kind of get into our own little groove, our own little world, where we just want to talk to happy people and have happy times and, and eat happy meals and have one big happy place. And, but if we're never really honest with each other, how can we help one another? I mean, if someone says you say, "Hey, how's, how's it going?" you say, "Great. How are you doing? Great." You know, when the reality is, you're suffering when the reality is you're going through a really hard time and just not willing to share with those around you. Listen, the next time someone says to you, how you doing, and they respond, not too good, don't think, I got a weirdo here, where's the pastor, they need to talk to him, no, no. Ask them, what's going on? What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? You might just be surprised that it's a divine appointment that God has set up because that person is struggling with something that you had struggled with, and God has taken you already through that. You're able to minister comfort to them. Because we all know Romans 8 28, all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So here's what the Lord is saying to us this morning God says, Remember, I'm eternal. I've always been, I always will be, and whatever's happening to you you is only temporary because those of you who believed in me, you're eternal as well. You're immortal. You'll spend eternity in my presence. The pain and the suffering isn't going to last forever. It's a part of a bigger plan. You know, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory and and vastly outweighs them and will last Forever. Paul says, his present troubles are small. The guy who was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, thrown out into the open sea, cast in the dungeons, no problem. Those present troubles are small and won't last very long, but they're working in me things that are glorious. Oh, if we can have Paul's eyes to see whatever it is that we endure presently are small compared to the weight of God's glory. So Jesus is eternal. He knows what we're going through. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan so that when we go through times of suffering and persecution we need to also remember point number four. Jesus has a promise. He has a promise. Look at verse 10. The end of verse 10. He says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. I mean here he's just reminding them he is loving and he is going to reward their faithfulness. Now Smyrna had been, uh, uh, they had an arena where all their athletic events took place. I mean, it was a very wealthy uh, town, a wealthy city, and so you can imagine the type of arenas they, they had back then. So this was a great arena. People knew about the athletic events. They knew about running races and winning crowns. When we talk about crowns, then we're not talking about, you know, uh, uh, the, what the Queen of England wears, is this gaudy-looking thing, but more of a crown of laurel leaves that they would give the winner of an athletic event. It was an award. It was something of great significance. So Jesus is saying, be faithful unto death, and I'll have this crown of life just waiting for you. Now, there are a number of different crowns uh, mentioned in the Bible. There's a crown of rejoicing, which apparently is given to those that lead other people to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope? Or joy, or crown of rejoicing, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? There's a crown of righteousness, which God's promised to those that love His appearing. 2 Timothy 4 8, finally there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Man, I love God's appearing, can't wait to see Him, and we're going to get a crown for that. But there's also this crown of life. Now it's interesting to the Church of Smyrna he promises, I would give you the crown of life because you face suffering, because you're being persecuted. But that same promise of reward is given to the person who resists temptation and endures personal suffering. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation and perseveres under trial for when he has withstood the test you will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those that love Him. So let me ask you a quick poll. How many of you have ever been tempted? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everybody. If you've been tempted, how many of you have ever been tempted to do something evil? Okay, all right. How many of you have never been tempted? Okay, I didn't see all the hands go up the first time. But I just want to make sure, okay. How many of you have been, been given into temptation to do evil? Everyone should raise their hand. My hand's up there right now. Now, how many of you have successfully resisted temptation? I think all of our hands should be up for that. Blessed is a man or woman that endures temptation and perseveres under trial. For when he has withstood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Get a crown for resisting temptation. You know, it's hard when temptation comes away. It's easy to stand up and say, oh, you know, it's evil, and and being tempted is evil. Yeah, temptation is bad, it's horrible, yeah. But what about when you are being tempted? See, we all know what the problem is. Temptation is tempting, right? (laughs) Hence the word temptation. It's alluring. See, I I don't believe the devil is an idiot. I think he's evil, but I think he's smart. And he knows how to package his stuff, and he knows how to make bad things look good. Remember Eve there in the garden, uh, tempted by the fruit in the garden. By the way, the Bible never says what type of fruit it was. I personally think it was a fig, you know, because they're so good, they're the best fruit there is. But, but it wasn't an apple. Maybe it was something we don't have today. Maybe it glowed, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fragrance of it. But whatever it was, the Bible says, the fruit was pleasant to look upon and desirable to make one wise. And you know the rest of the story. The temptations come. And at the moment, it's hard to resist. It's not easy. But you take a hold of the Word of God. You quote it to yourself. You apply it in your situation. You yield to the Holy Spirit in your life. And you say, no, I'm not giving in to this temptation. It's wrong and it displeases my God. And all the while, the devil is going, you idiot, this is the greatest opportunity you ever go for. It's no big deal. Come on, one time, who's going to know? And you say, no, 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 I will resist it. And then it sort of passes. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you go, "Phew, man, that's great. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I just passed the test. But then you see the result of someone who didn't pass the test, who gave it to temptation and say, oh Lord, thank you that I didn't do that. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive a crown of life. There is a the reward waiting for us. But again, not just for the person resisting temptation, but for the person going through times of suffering and persecution. Maybe you're suffering today. Maybe you have family problems, marital problems, children problems, physical problems, work problems, disability Bad news from a doctor. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Whatever it is you're suffering from, it's hard. It may not seem fair to you. Listen, this is what Jesus is saying to the church of Smyrna. We need to be faithful. Faithful to the end. Why? Because God is in control. Jesus is eternal. He knows about our suffering. He has a plan. And He has a promise. There's a, a verse of a song by Annie J. Flint called He Giveth More Grace that beautifully describes this. It goes like this when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength is gone, ere the day is half through, when we have reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His grace has no limits. His love has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. I love that. This brings us to our final point. Jesus takes away our fear. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Jesus says, as bad as things may get, we have no reason to be afraid. Why? And he gives us a reason why. Because you won't be hurt by the second death. So, what is this? second death that Jesus is talking about. Basically, it's dying again after you've died once. Well, how is that possible? Is it because you were mostly dead, which means a little alive, like poor Wesley from the Princess Bride movie? No, that's not what it means. Let me explain the second death. The the non-believer dies twice. First, this life, this side of eternity on this earth, really for a non-believer is a state of living death. Kind of like a zombie. The Bible says, says this even in 1 Timothy 5, 6. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. The Bible says, without Christ we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. It's a state of deadness. People chase after everything in this world that it has to offer, and it always comes up empty. Then you die in your trespasses and your sin. You have to die again. This second death is mentioned multiple times in the book of Revelation, and it's synonymous with the lake of fire. It's a death that's... It's, it's separation from God, the giver of life. It's called the second one because, it, again, it follows physical death. Revelation twenty one eight describes the second death really with the most detail. It says this, "...but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone." which is the second death. Two other places, other than here in chapter 2 of Revelation, also mention the second death. Revelation 20, verse 6, speaks of the second death in relation to the millennial reign of Christ. It says there, Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. that, That verse gives us three important facts. First, those who die for their faith in Jesus during the tribulation will later be resurrected to live during the millennium and live with him. Second, these martyrs will escape the lake of fire, second death. And third, they're going to reign with Christ. Then one more second death, Revelation 20, 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. At the very end of time, even death and the grave, Hades, will be thrown into the lake of fire. In addition, every person whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. That the condition, it's final. It's a final judgment. The destination is permanent. So what Jesus is saying to this church in Smyrna when he says in verse 11, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He's promising, listen, You're not going to have to go through the lake of fire. You're you're not going to be separated from me for all eternity. The second death exclusively is for those who have rejected Christ. It's not a place for believers in Jesus Christ. So we should not fear. Because the Bible says if you're born again on this earth, you will inherit the kingdom of God. So born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Listen, this world is as good as it's ever going to get for the non-believer. I recently was listening to Pastor Skip Heisig from Albuquerque, New Mexico, on the radio yes, yesterday, I think it was, about a baseball game he won to there in Albuquerque. He says it was the seventh inning. The old team was, was losing big time. The weather was horrible. It was hot. It was windy. It was dusty. But he said there was two guys sitting in front of him just downing the Budweiser's one after another. And one lifts up his beer and says, this is as good as it gets. Skip points out, if that were true, I'd be really disappointed. And maybe for them, that was as good as it gets. And here's what I would say. If you're not going to believe in Jesus, then enjoy everything you can. Go for all the gusto you can, you can, because this is as good as it's going to get for you. But for we as believers, this is as bad as it's going to get for us. The, the, the best is yet to come. But again, for a non-believer, you will die twice. You'll have death in this life, so to speak, and then that second death where you'll face final judgment. And let me tell you, that second death is far worse than the first death. And if you're here and you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you'd not leave here without giving your heart and life to Him, that you'd have your sins forgiven. You'll be born again today. But here's the bottom line when it comes to persecution and suffering. Jesus knows what we're going through, and He's the one who can for us. Things may get better if we're suffering this morning, they may stay the same. They may even get worse. But know this. Jesus, the first and the last, has been through it. He will go through it with you. And he will be with you when you emerge on the other side. It could be you're not suffering today at all. Praise God. Most of us have not suffered like this church in Smyrna did. But let me say this. There are people that are. And it's horrible what's happening to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, and, and, and we should be praying for them, and we should realize that except for the grace of God, there go any one of us. We could absolutely be next if the Lord should tarry. And if our great country can, can, continues down the path it's heading, there's no guarantee the rapture is going to happen before more persecution comes to the United States of America no guarantee we're going to be free from persecution. We can pray, Lord, come quickly, please. That's my prayer. The political climate in America is changing rapidly. But let me say this, a change in politics doesn't mean a change in our Christianity. We need not compromise, and we need to cling to the truth we know from God's Word, and we need to minister grace one to another. See, we're all in this together. You know, there was nothing that Jesus had to say bad about the church in Smyrna. No call to repentance, just a call to remain faithful even to the end, and you'll get the crown of life, he says. I want to close with this. This is the account of Pastor Polycarp as he took Jesus' word seriously here and was faithful even to death. It's his death, um, his martyrdom. It's found in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it goes like this. Polycarp was the pastor of Smyrna, Hearing his captors had arrived one evening, Polycarp left his bed to welcome them, ordered a meal prepared for them, and then asked for one hour alone to pray. The soldiers were so impressed by Polycarp's advanced age and composure that they began to wonder why they had been sent to take him. But as soon as he had finished his prayers, they put him on a donkey and brought him to the city. As he entered the stadium with his guards, a voice from heaven was heard to say, Be strong, Polycarp. And play the man. Brought before the tribunal and the crowd, Polycarp refused to deny Christ. The proconsul begged him to consider himself and have pity on his great age. Reproach Christ, and I will release you. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was threatened with wild beasts, but Polycarp stood his ground. What are you waiting for? Do whatever you please. The governor then threatened him with fire, to which Polycarp answered, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after is extinguished, but you will have to face the fires of judgment that will burn for eternity unless you repent. At that, the crowd demanded Polycarp's death, gathering wood for the fire and preparing to tie him to the stake. Leave me, he said. He who will give me strength to sustain the fire will help me not to flinch from the pile. And so they bound him but didn't nail him to the stake. Polycarp prayed, I thank you, Lord, that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour that I may be a part of the number of martyrs to die for Christ. And as soon as Polycarp finished his prayer, the fire was lit. Man, I look forward to meeting that guy when we get to heaven. Here was a man who took what the Lord said seriously to the end and he remained faithful to death. After serving the Lord for some 86 years, how can I deny the one who's been faithful to me for 86 years? Listen, we must live for Jesus today. It's the only guarantee that we'll be able to die for Jesus tomorrow. The world says, I can kill you a thousand different ways. Jesus says, I can give you life and not more abundantly. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you, though we suffer persecution on a smaller level level here, Lord. We know in other parts of the world it's happening much worse. And it may get worse here, Lord, where we are. at. I know we're experiencing more than we have in the past. Father, we do pray for our sister churches in California. We pray for the suffering that they may be going through. Lord, we pray for the personal suffering that people may be going through in their lives with this pandemic and staying home and the loneliness and all those things that happen. As a result of it, Lord, we need to remember your words to us this morning. Jesus, that you are eternal. Jesus, you know about our suffering. Jesus, you have a plan, you have a promise. And Jesus, you take away all of our fear. We thank you that we can trust in you, rely on you, cling to you. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to put their faith and trust in you. They're not born again. Lord, would you especially touch their heart this morning? That they would see their need to turn from their sin and turn to you today. Help them to be born again today. And Father, we ask your blessing upon our evening as we Go out for the baptism, Lord, that you would bring many folks out. that would be just a rejoiceful a time of just showing the world what you've done in our hearts. Bless our baptism. Bless our coming Wednesday nights as we have a call to prayer, Lord. And bless us as we go our way today, enduring the persecution, enduring the suffering, that we might bring glory to your name and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together. Amen.